Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for uh, this day that you have given to us. Lord, we, we praise and just thank you for the time to gather as your people to worship and to praise you. But Lord, we're also very thankful for uh, the, the time just to be together and to, to look at your church and the things that you have revealed to us in your word. I pray that you'd help us to uh, understand these things and as we talk and discuss uh, Lord, just to, to draw us closer together in Christ and the unity that we already have in Him, we pray in your name. Amen. All right, so um, before we uh, get started, and, and I know this isn't the, the best setup, we're still trying to work on the best setup, but um, if you think of the vows that we that you take for membership, and that's sort of what we're uh, revolving this class around, are these five vows. You can sort of summarize each vow in this way, with sin, savior, sanctification, support, and submission. The first vow being our predicament that we have, that we are born sinners. And, and the first membership vow is just acknowledging that. Do you acknowledge yourself to be sinners in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure, and without hope, saving his sovereign mercy. So it's not just a sense of saying, yeah, I'm a sinner, or yes, I commit sin, but just saying, yes, I am totally bankrupt before God. And apart from his mercy, I, I really deserve to go to hell. And, and, and if God sent me to hell, that would be fine, because really that's, that's what I deserve. So uh, that's what the first vow is talking about. The second deals with our Savior, God's provision for us, and that is in Jesus Christ. And that's what we talked about last week. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? And do you receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation as He is offered in the Gospel? So it's not just a sense of, yeah, I believe that Jesus died on the cross to save me from my sins. It's not just that. You know, there's a sense in which that means something. You know, God has taken me from being a one who sins and is dead in their sins to someone who is now alive in Jesus Christ. And I am resting and I am trusting completely upon Him. And then the third vow is, it could be summarized by the word sanctification. That's the power that uh, Christ gives or that God gives us, you know, to live the Christian life. You know, do you now resolve and promise and humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live? as becomes the followers of Christ. So there's a sense in which now that we have this new life in Christ, you know, it means something. It means that we live a, a certain way. And so, uh, anyway, and then uh, the last two would be support. Do you promise to support the church and its worship and work to the best of your ability? And do you submit yourself to the government and discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and peace? So, you know, these two here have to do with the requirements of membership. Of membership. These last three have to do with the expectations of membership. And so we, we've covered these two, and uh, we're going to just go over this just a little bit more, and then we're going to begin to talk about these three then for the remainder of our time. And uh, anyway, any questions about that this week? Okay. Um, as I said, uh, as a church, 
we believe what most other churches believe, that there is one God, and that one God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe that the Bible is the Word of God. We believe that Jesus Christ uh, was, that He was, uh, that He's the eternal Son of God, that He came, uh, was incarnate, born fully God and fully man, that he died on the cross, that he rose again from the dead, and he will bodily return again to take his church to, to glory. You know, all those things that other churches believe. But there are some things that we believe as a church that's very different from what some other churches believe. And a lot of it has to do with the Reformation that we've been talking about, the Protestant Reformation. You know, we talked about how after the New Testament period, there was a period of about a thousand years where the church just sort of increasingly moved away from the scriptures and tradition became more important until it got to the point around 13, 14, 1500s. You know, God began to open the eyes of men and of women to, to read the scriptures and to, to hear what the scriptures say. And as they held up what the scriptures said to what they saw in the church, there was a disconnect there. It wasn't the same. And so these people then began to come to the church and say, you know, we need to talk about this. We don't see in the church what's in the scriptures. And that sort of came to a culmination in 1517, October 31st, 1517, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the, the door of the Wittenberg church castle, you know, uh, the castle church door. And basically what he was saying is, guys, this is what I see uh, in, in the church that I don't see in Scripture that we need to talk about. You know, so it was just like a blog post, you know, let's discuss this. And uh, but the church didn't really take it that way. You know, his his intention and that of the reformers was to reform the church. But the church said, no, we're not going to do that. And so we end up with the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. But that, like I said, that wasn't the intent. Well, you know, God wasn't just working in Germany through Luther. You know, there were there were this Reformation in England, Reformation in Switzerland, Reformation in France, all over the world. God was at work just sort of bringing his church back to what the scripture said. And the Lord raised up, you know, different people to, to do different functions and stuff. But one of the men he raised up was John Calvin. Great name, right? John Calvin. Okay, and uh, he, John Calvin was an attorney by trade, and he had a mind like that. And, you know, he was the, the kind of person that he, the Lord used him to sort of organize the different teachings and things like that that were uh, coming out of the scriptures and putting them in a way that the people could understand. And uh, he, you know, has a two-volume set, the Institutes of the Christian Faith, Christian Religion, and uh, which is a great summation and a good read. I encourage you to, to read that. But anyway, in that he he talks about uh, a lot of different things. And the things about Reformed theology uh, is that it really covers all of life. You know, it talks about how what our families ought to look like and how we ought to work and how we ought to worship and and everything. Uh, but uh, as it pertains to what we're talking about here and about salvation, it's it's commonly sort of boiled down to what is known as tulip. Okay, and uh, and let me let me just back up just a minute before I get to tulip. As you come to the Reformation, the really the big shift in the Reformation was that the church was focused upon people and what they ought to do about on mankind. 
okay, and, uh, and, and what they need to do to get to God. And the Reformation just said, no, actually, it's really about God and what God is doing. So sovereignty, I would say, is probably be the one word that would summarize the Reformation if you could do such a thing. That's probably unfair to try to do that in one word. But it really was ex- exalting the glory of God, the, the greatness of God, his sovereignty. And so, anyway, um, as the Reformers saw the scripture, that's what they saw there. Well, there were those that, that struggled with that. And they said, you know, I don't, I don't really agree with the Reformed faith. As a matter of fact, these are the five areas I really disagree with the Reformed faith. And so uh, they wrote those out. And, and that's what the five points of Calvinism is, is just sort of refuting those five points. Unfortunately, a lot of people, when they think of Reformed theology, that's all they think about. And for our purposes today, that's all we're going to talk about. But just know that there is so much more. Uh, it's, a, it's really a robust uh, understanding of Scripture and life, of work, of family, you know, of everything. So uh, I, I encourage you to study that. But for those of you that did not grow up in Presbyterian churches or, you know, maybe you did grow up in a Presbyterian church all your life, but you've never really uh, thought about this. I want you to listen to these five points of Calvinism, and then we're going to sort of be done with these first two vows. But I just want you to see that we we understand Scripture a little bit differently than some churches, because many churches today have, you know, if you think of the Reformation as being this pinnacle of looking at the glory of God and His sovereignty— since the Reformation, the church has sort of swung back the other way as it did before the Reformation and has once again become very man-centered. It's about what you do. Are you going to choose Jesus? Are you going to come to him? You know, God can't do this unless, you know, you want him to do this. You know, you hear these kind of things in the church today. And here again, it almost seems like we have the control of God. Well, that's not the God of Scripture. Okay, that is not the God of Scripture. And so I want you to see, you know, what God lays out. And sometimes it's rather hard for us to hear the things that that God uh, has actually said in the Scripture. Now, if, if you don't get all this down, it's fine. It's actually a lot of this is on our website. If you go to Reformed Theology, under the tab uh, of uh, what we believe, there's a little tab that says... Uh, what is Reformed Theology? You click on that, and then in the first sentence or so, to talk about the doctrines of grace. And you just click on that link, and it'll take you to a little summary of what I want to share today. But if you think of, uh, if you think of this acrostic, and you know, here again, today I'm all about trying to give you tools to help you to, uh, to remember the things that we're talking about. Um, you make it across it too low. Okay. Um, what is the first point of Tulip? For those of you who have grown up in the church. Total depravity of man. What is it? Total depravity of man. Total depravity of man. My board's small, so I'm going to agree with it. Total depravity of man, okay? And, and basically, total depravity of man is, is that we are completely incapable of, of coming to God, of, of choosing Him. Um, it, you know, we have talked, we've used illustrations about how we're dead in our sins. But many churches today in, in the evangelical world do not believe that we're dead. 
they believe we're sick. In other words, God has given us enough innate ability within ourselves to be able to choose Him. And then once we choose Him, then God kicks in. And then God helps us out the rest of the way, and we can become a believer. But that's not what you see in Scripture. You know, what did we talk about in Romans 3, 23? You know, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none who are righteous. There are none who seek God. You know, so there's not a sense in which we are are seeking the Lord um, to, to come to Him. We are dead. We are a corpse. And so the Spirit of God has to work in us. And, and it's a little bit like uh, Steve Smallman wrote a book, and I can't remember. I couldn't find the book. My library's a little disorganized, unfortunately, right now. But uh, he wrote a book. I think it's called Birthline. I think is what it's called. I'm not 100% certain. But he sort of likens uh, our faith in Christ sort of like a woman who gives birth. And I'm not going to go into graphic detail, but if you think about uh, you know, a Christian who professes their faith in Jesus Christ, uh, you know, and uh, uh, and there's this conversion and everything, and and now they say, "Hey, I'm a Christian," and they're all excited and stuff. You know, he sort of likens that to a woman giving birth. Okay, the baby coming out of the womb, and now you have this baby. But the the reality is, is how long has that baby been alive? For like two minutes? No, for months. A baby was alive for months in the womb, okay? And in the same way, because we are dead in our sins, everything that we hear, the preacher stands up, and he, he just works hard to prepare this sermon. He is praying for his congregation. He is preaching the Word of God, and he is preaching with the unction of the Holy Spirit. And there's going to be people who sit there in the pew, and nothing. The lights are off. They don't hear a thing. There's no change in their heart. And that's because he's preaching to dead people. And so what's required is for the Spirit of God to so work in the heart of the person that he makes them alive. And where they can then hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then they say, yes, I hear the message. Yes, I recognize I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. And they come to faith in Him. But that life doesn't come at the moment that they say that. That life comes before that because they need that new life. They need the Spirit of God to work in their hearts. So that's why that total depravity is so important. But also then you have the second thing, which is unconditional election. Okay, now it's going to be really hard if you, if you read Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 4 and 5. Does somebody have that? Could you look that up and read that real quickly? Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Ephesians what? Uh, 1, 4 and 5. Even as he chose us... Uh, in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love he predestined us for adoption through jesus christ according to the purpose of his will okay it's really it's really hard to argue that the bible doesn't teach god's election 
You know, God does elect us. God chooses a people for himself. And we, we see that not just in the New Testament. We see that in the Old Testament. He chose who as his people in the Old Testament? Israel. <clears throat> who? Israel. Israel, right. And, and, and he didn't just, like, find this nation and go, wow, you guys are a cool nation. I think I want you to be my people. He actually created them out of nothing. He actually took just a family, just a person, and out of their family, he created a nation, and, and he, he, he chose them even at, you know, before he formed them. And in the same way, God has chosen the people in the New Testament, his church, and, and he, he did this. And, and we don't necessarily, I think, disagree as Christians on that as much as what is the basis on which God chose uh, his people. And that is, there are some, and many in the church today, who said that God looked through the corridors of time. He's back here in eternity, and he hasn't created anything yet, but he knows that he's going to create this world, and he knows every person he's going to make, and he looks down through time, and he sees that Rick Franks is going to choose him. And so God says, because Rick chose me, I'm going to choose him. I'm going to elect him. He's going to be one of my children. But that's not what we see in Scripture. You know, it says that God chose us since before the creation of the world. In the same way, Israel, God set his affections upon Israel just because he chose them, just because he loved them. And it's the same way with his church. He has loved us. So God chooses some and doesn't choose others. And that oftentimes uh, is very difficult for us to grasp and to understand. And we're going to talk more about this in the sermon today as we talk about the glory of God, but you have his unconditional election, so God has chosen us, but then you also have what's known as limited atonement. What does atonement mean? It refers to the fact that our sins are atoned for, they're not, um, we're not uh, guilty. Of okay, point. yeah, or what somebody else said something. What? Huh? They're paid, for. paid for. Paid for? Yeah. They're covered? Whoops. Satisfaction of justice. Yes. God's uh, justice is, is satisfied. There's a debt that's owed because of our sin. And, and, and now that's satisfied. And, <coughs> excuse me. And there are, there are many in the church today that believe that when Jesus died, he died for every single person on this world. And, and he did that in order, uh, his death made possible uh, salvation. It didn't actually accomplish salvation for anybody. It just made it possible. It's almost like Jesus died and said, you know, I have this voucher here, you know, and uh, if you accept this voucher of my salvation, then it applies to you. But if you look at scripture and read what it says, you know, passages like Romans 8, 29, and 30, you see that it talks about how Jesus actually accomplishes that salvation. You know, that, that it actually happens, and you have that salvation. And so Christ died for his people. It's who he died for, for everybody. Another term for limited atonement is particular atonement, and that's probably uh, a better uh, example of that. The, the, third, the fourth thing is irresistible grace. What is irresistible? What's irresistible grace? It's grace that's irresistible, right? Yeah. No, go ahead. What 
explain to me, what, is, what does that mean? Everyone that God draws to himself will believe. They will make the they will make the real decision, a real choice to believe. Yes. Over and against. Like the uh, wooing. Uh, the Arminian idea of resistible grace where people can, God sort of woos somebody and they can resist that wooing and say no. Mm-hmm. They can say yes or no. Now, some would uh, have a problem with that and say, well, but if, uh, you know, if, if that grace is irresistible, then are you telling me that God is making me come to faith in Him when I don't want to? And, 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 and you know, I can appreciate that argument and that question, but the reality is, is that you're talking about a dead person, and, and God comes in and He says, here's life, and He gives life and makes them alive. You think they're going to want to say, yeah, no, I'd rather be dead. You know, I mean, I, I sort of like being a corpse. You know, I don't like that. You know, that's that's not the way it is. It, it just is irresistible grace and the work of the Holy Spirit, you know, opens our eyes to the glory and the grace that God and the salvation that God has showed us and, and the new life that we have in Him. And we are so thankful and we get praise and we worship Him. But uh, then the last one is perseverance of the saints. What's that? Perseverance of the saints. Those, it, tackling back to Romans um, 29 and 30, those whom he calls, he justifies, so on and so forth, all the way to glorification. There is nothing, no one falling away. God brings them uh, to his presence. Yes. So those whom Christ has, has died for, you know, will come to faith in him, and he will keep them faithful to the end. Now, you know, some people uh, say, oh, so you as Presbyterians believe in what saved, God will save. Right? Yep. Nope. nope. Not really in one sense. In one sense, the once saved, always saved could be like uh, the difference, I think, between the perseverance of the saints and once saved, always saved is this. That, that once saved, always saved can have the idea or the connotation that you are saved so it doesn't matter what you do. You can go live like a hellion if you want to. You can go do whatever you want during the week, you know, six days out of seven. You know, it's not that you work, but you play, and you sin, and you just feed the flesh, and you just have a heyday. And then on Sunday, you can come and be righteous and, you know, act very pious, and it's okay, because you're saved. You know, but that's not that's not the idea with uh, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a sense in which we are called to that obedience, and that Christ will keep those that are His safe to the end but there's a sense as, as a believer that you know it's not like we can have one uh foot in the world and one foot in the church and we're going to talk about that in just a minute so so there is a sense in which there's a there's a security there but I, what i want you to see in this uh, tulip is just this chain of events where in many churches today the gospel is presented like this jesus christ died for you do you want to choose him today Okay, and you, do you want to choose him? And you say, yeah, I think I'll choose him. Or, nah, I don't think I want to do that. You know, and, and the choice, it all falls upon you. And then once you become a believer, you know, then oftentimes there's that struggle. Uh, well, I do see that sometimes I sin and sometimes I don't sin. And, 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 and am I his? And, you know, am I truly a Christian? And because my salvation is dependent upon my choice, then my salvation all the way through is dependent upon me. 
But as you read the scripture, what you see is that we are totally depraved. We're dead. You know, God is the one that looked down through time and said, this is my child because I'm setting my affection on them. Not because of anything they've done, but because I have chosen them. And I will. And I have sent my son and he has died. He has purchased them for me as my child. And, and, and they will come to faith in me. And I will keep them to the end. That not only will they come to faith in me, and they will walk with me throughout their time on this earth. Yes, there will be struggles. Yes, they will wrestle with sin. But their heart will be given to me, and I will keep them uh, to persevere to the end until they come to glory and they enjoy fellowship with me forever. So you can see that there's very much more in, in our doctrine, in our teachings, uh, a focus on God's sovereignty. But I'll tell you what, for, if you've not grown up with that, that can sound sort of like uh, fingers on a chalkboard. It can seem very abrasive because it sort of confronts our human, our, our will for control and for power and to exhort exert our will you know over uh, others and especially over God so if, if this is a struggle for you you know please come talk with me um, I will tell you this I was in seminary when I heard this for the first time and the professor was uh, you know, he was going over all this and I was like no that can't be the way it is you know because I had been raised in a good Arminian church and and, and everything and and he said, and if you're struggling with this, if you're really wrestling with this, he said, I, there, there's this great book that's come out, and uh, I encourage you to read it. I think it'll help answer a lot of your questions. And he said, it's called the Bible. <laughs> he said, just start reading the Bible. And he said, and prove me wrong. And so, you know, I'm sort of a stubborn son of a gun sometimes. <laughs> and so I'm like, God, I'll do that. And so I got my Bible out, and I started reading that. And it was like everywhere. It's like, my word, how did I not see this? And so I encourage you to do the same. But but like I said, if this isn't your understanding of Scripture or it seems sort of odd, talk to me. Okay, I'd love to sit down and, and chat with you and love to hear what you have to say. So anyway, are there any questions, Joe, right now on this? or? I, I'm so sorry. This is about a two to three week class that I typically teach. So this is really hard to summarize in just a, a few minutes. But, uh, okay, well, let's, uh, let's move on then. And let's talk about the third membership vow, okay? And uh, the third membership vow is what? It's on your hand out. <laughs> Do you now resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live and become the followers of Christ? Okay, so I want us to read a couple of passages of the scripture as we look at, begin and look at this. Uh, both of them are in Matthew. Look at Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Some of you could even just quote that. And if so, that's fine. With Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Would somebody read that? For those that may not know it. When Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit 
teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Okay. Um, so he's speaking to his disciples, his, his followers, and he's saying to them that they are to go and do what? Make disciples. Make disciples. Okay. They, and in other words, they are to go and to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as others come to faith in him, then they will be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ as well. Now, what what is the difference, do you think, between uh, a Christian and a disciple? Is there a distinction between those two terms? I mean, we don't, you know, we don't typically refer to each other as disciples. Hey, disciple Tim, how are you doing today? Or other disciple Tim, how are you doing today? You know, it's not, we don't usually use that term. So what's the difference between a disciple and a Christian? Where is there? I would say there isn't. Um, both are, when it comes right down to our followers of Christ, those who uh, follow him in the pattern that he has set out because he has made them alive in him. Okay. I did grow up in a church where the term disciple and discipling was very used and pretty much what it uh, meant, you know, is a person that, like if Erica would be my disciple, because I am committed to teach her and she is constantly under my teaching and like an apprentice kind of a thing, so I'm giving her Bible studies and everything. She herself could be influenced another person. So the idea of and overseeing or looking up to kind of that's kind of how it was used, you know. So she's my disciple because I've been I'm walk, I'm helping her walk through life and you know so uh, that 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 was the mentality of that church, you know. So it was like uh, you know that idea of mentoring kind of thing mm-hmm. one another. So so there's definitely a relationship there that revolves around the Word of God. Mm-hmm. And the Spirit of God, okay? And and that relationship, let me just add this too, is not just between the humans, the discipler and the disciple lead, but really we're pointing that person to Jesus Christ. So that relationship is really with Christ. Okay? What what else? What what's the other distinction? What 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 is it what does the, the term disciple mean? Learn. Learner, okay. It's someone who is a learner. Uh, does that mean somebody, Bill, who's just interested in book knowledge, or no, not necessarily. But when I think Christian and disciple, there's not a lot of distinction, but positionally there could be distinction. One, someone that's come to faith and knowledge, someone that's on their way to becoming faith and knowledge. But they're both disciples, uh-huh. and even once you come to faith and knowledge in Christ. There's some people that have have matured in their spiritual walk more than others, and yet they're still disciples because they haven't arrived yet. You yeah. Know, and really, they never will until they're glorified. So even if you're discipling someone, you're still a disciple yourself. Right. Yeah. No, that's a good point. And I think that, <clears throat> too, I think that when we think of learner, we think of like this, a classroom setting. In Jesus' day, a learner would be someone who would follow his master around in everyday life. You know, he would be, you know, seeing how he works, seeing how he plays, seeing how he relates to people, all that. So he's sort of following them and learning 
you know, just in, in all of life. So it is very much a, a, a relationship, learning, you know, growing, as uh, Bill sort of alluded to as well, a type of relationship. Now, what is it? What does the term Christian mean? Is ultimately he's a follower of Christ. Yeah, it means Christ-like. Okay, is what Christian means. Christ-like. So if you think about disciple and you think about Christian, it's really the same thing. Okay, but I would suggest to you, in our culture, it seems way different. You know, that a Christian is almost a title that you put on. You know, that a person is a Christian. You know, and, uh, and you know, I think sometimes, you know, we think that a person is, uh, you know, well, yeah, let me wait on that just a second. Uh, yeah, so it's just a, a title that we put on. But but if you if you look at that in terms of, uh, of being the disciple and understanding they're the same thing, there's a whole lot more to being a Christian than just you know, professing with your mouth, "Hey, I'm a Christian." You know, you could I, one of the illustrations I use, and it's sort of a stupid illustration, but I said, you know, just think if you knew somebody who said that they were a professional baseball player, and you said, really, you're a professional baseball player? Cool. What team do you play for? Oh, I don't play for a team. You know, really? No. But I have a uniform. Really? It's it's for your team? Well, no. It's just one I picked up at Goodwill. It's just a you know a baseball uniform. You know, just because I like baseball. And and I go to the stadium every week and and I sit and I I watch uh, games and I just love baseball. You know, so I'm a professional baseball player. And you're like. You're not a professional baseball player. Just because you hang around with professional baseball players and you like the sport does not make you a professional baseball player. And yet, how many people do the same thing? Well, I go to church every Sunday, and you know, I hang out with Christians, and, and I'm a good person, and you know, so I'm a Christian. You know, that's just as ridiculous as the person who says they're a professional baseball player. You know, so how does God describe? A disciple of Jesus Christ. Uh, look at Matthew 16 now. And if somebody would read verses 24 through 26. Matthew 16, verses 24 through 26. <clears throat> Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Wow. Now that's the call of Christ on the life of every believer, of every Christian, of every disciple. That, that they are to, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, let me ask you a question. How many billboards do you think around town, you know, church billboards that you see around town, do you think the, you would hear, you know, see on there people saying, please come to our church where you can learn to deny yourself, where you can lose your life, where you can take up your cross and suffer, you know, where you can come and you can die for the things that you want to do. You know, it's probably not going to be on there unless it's some cutesy kind of little phrase that, you know, that they've come up with. 
you know, it's funny, I just went by church this week, and they were like, come to our Wednesday night program, free food, fun, you know, and that's really more how the church is marketing a lot today. It's like, come to our church, be part of, of our church, and you're going to gain something out of this. What does Jesus say? Come and lose everything. You know, come and lose everything. Except eternal life, you know. We, we gain Christ in that relationship with God. So it's a little bit like the old hymn, Yes, I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. The world behind me, the cross before me. Though none go with me, still I follow. And that's really what that that's this third vow is talking about. That there's a sense in which, you know, we are following the Lord Jesus Christ and doing what he calls us to do. And he's not calling ourselves to deny our flesh, to deny our own desires, to deny the things that we want to do, and to take up our cross and, and to follow him. And, uh, you know, at the point that you become a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that that baby is born out of the mother's womb, spiritually speaking, that person is a disciple. God has taken that corpse from death to life, and he says, now that you have life, I want you to, to live as becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. You're no longer like the world that's out there just indulging and doing whatever they want to do and living their life the way they want to. You have been given a new life and a new opportunity to walk in obedience to me and to do those things that I've called you to do. Does that sound exciting? Well, let's probe into that just a little bit more, and we'll see how exciting it sounds at the end. It is exciting, you know, it is. But there's there's a cost to that, is there not? There's a cost to that. I mean, why, why do you think it's so difficult for people uh, in our age, you know, why do you think it's so difficult for people in Andover to be disciples of Christ? What are the things that oftentimes... Uh, dissuade people from doing that. We don't want to give up the pleasures of this world. Okay. We don't want to give up the pleasures of this world. We don't want anybody to tell us what to do. We are selfish by nature. Okay. We want to do whatever. I mean, who? we don't want a boss. You know, I want to be comfortable. I want to be in control. I want to do whatever I want. You know. Yeah. So it's, a, it's, it's an intrusion. It's like God is intrusion. You know. So it's not convenient. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's true. That's true. Get up. Are there any other things you can think of? What What about friends that you have? Maybe that you've talked to about Christ. What are what are some of the excuses, or what are some of the reasons, I should say, that that, that they give you for, yeah, not, I don't want to go to church, or I, I don't, you know, that Jesus thing is good for you, but it's not for me. I've seen the, I've seen a lot of grief, not understanding how God could allow that. Yeah. And it's, if he allows that, then he must not be there. Yeah. And some people kind of along with that think it's irrational um, they, they don't believe in the God or they just don't believe in God they allow the kind of world that we live in and they don't understand faith you know that it's based on knowledge it's not just a pie in the sky type of thing 
You know, I think sometimes too, uh, uh, wealth and affluence gets in our way. Mm-hmm. You know, whenever, whenever the more things we have, and I'll tell you what, you take the poorest American. Uh, I've, I've had the, is it the privilege? I guess the privilege to be in some third world countries. And you know, the most poor of Americans are still filthy rich compared to even some of the wealthy in other countries. And, and that wealth and that sense of self-sufficiency and not seeing our need because we do have uh, because we do have things, you know, sometimes gets in the way and, and keeps us from being able to do that. Um, it's a little bit like the rich young ruler. You remember that that account? He came to Jesus and he was asking about salvation. And what did Jesus said? He said, "Go and sell everything you have and and come to me." Jesus was saying. You know, it's either me uh, or it's everything else. You must be willing to give up everything to follow me. And that's what Christ is 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 calling us to. Now, uh, it almost sounds like, and then what, what Ben said uh, a little bit earlier about, well, you know, people, I don't remember how you put that, but I was thinking you were, you know, if, when you said whatever you said, I was thinking, you know, people do sometimes have the idea that Christians are a bunch of killjoys. You know, they just, if there's any fun in the world, Christians are there just to stomp it out. You know, they just, they're just sour pusses and, you know, things like that. You know, the reason why Christ comes and says, give me everything, is because all these everythings out here are actually obstacles to what is truly good. You know, um, it's... Uh, it's like we we grab on to all these idols and all these things that we want, you know, and we have our hands full and these idols are actually masters of us. We think that we're controlling our idols and we're getting pleasure out of them. But eventually those idols become masters and they begin to control and manipulate our lives and they put us in bondage. And God says, I want you to be free from that sister, brother. I want you to be free from that. You know, so Christ calls us to give up all of those things that we might embrace him and we might have him alone. And so that's that's really what uh, what that what that call is, is to come. And every Christian then is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so, you know, I think a couple of things that get in the way of that in the church is one nominalism. You know, just the idea of I'm saying that I'm a Christian and it's sort of what I was saying earlier, you know. Uh, what does it take to be a Christian in our culture? Just say it. Just say it, yeah. You just If it comes out of your mouth, then it's true. But we've already seen that that's not necessarily the case. Um, don't you think, too, really what's required to be a follower of Jesus Christ, to be a Christian, is just to be a nice person? You know? And, 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 and who in this room is going to say that somebody else is not a nice person? Who would who would have the guts to say that? Other than Greg back there, you know, uh, you know, you just don't say that. You don't say those kind of things. And so, you know, there's a lot of nominalism where people think that they are believers and they'll come to church and they'll sit in these chairs and they'll listen to the preaching of the Word of God and they're going to hell, but they feel good about themselves because they're hanging around other Christians. And, you know, so that's one thing that's an enemy. The other thing, I think, is a sense of worldliness, where, like I said, there are people who want to have one foot in the world and one foot in the church. 
And the reality is, brothers and sisters, we, we struggle with sin. And we're going to be tempted, and there's going to be times where we're going to give in to sin. But what is our, what is our lifestyle? What is the main drive of our life? Is it, is it Christ? Or is it this sense of trying to balance this worldliness in our Christian faith? You know, is it a sense of saying, well, I go to church, I, I profess my faith in Christ, but I also uh, like my pornography, and, uh, you know, so six days out of seven, I'm going to view inappropriate images and videos, uh, and then on Sunday, I'll go to church, maybe I'll go to Bible study. You know, it's not so much a wrestling over that sin, as much as it just giving into it, and just both of those have become a part of my life. And I was just assimilated that. You know, what was Israel's sin? You know, it wasn't just that they forsook God. It's that they incorporated the pagan practices into with their religion, with their Christian faith. And so, you know, and, and Christians still try to do, or people still try to do that today, and they call themselves Christians. They try to walk as close to the edge of sin is they can, so they can enjoy the sin, but also enjoy the enjoy Christ as well. But I, I like an illustration somebody shared with me the other day. They said, you know, you ever notice that when you go up somewhere high, and maybe this is just true of me because I don't like heights, okay? <laughs> but but maybe it's true of everybody. But if you get up a really high place on a mountain, cliff, or a tall building or something, and you get to the edge, do you, do you feel like you're being pulled down? You feel like you could almost just be, if you just relax, you would just fall off. Is that true of everybody? Okay. So, and I think that's gravity. I think that's what that is. You know, just, you know, so, so they say the way to counter that is to stay back away from the edge. You can still, you can see the view, but stay away from the edge. And then it's, you know, it's interesting that pull is not quite so strong. Well, I'll just tell you this. If, if you're here today... And your temptation is to, to live as that worldly person. Part of your problem is you're living too close to the edge. And you're, and you're feeling that constant pull, you know, towards sin because it's, it's strong. You know, Christ calls us not to be there. He calls us to be back away from that sin for our own good and our own protection that we can walk in righteousness. So anyway, does that make sense? So, you know, if you're, if you're here today and you're a young person and you want to be accepted by everybody else and so, you know, you go out and, and you get drunk or, or you do things that you know that uh, is dishonoring to your parents or to Christ or maybe you have intimacy with those of the opposite sex, just because you want to fit in and you want to be accepted, that's not what Christ calls us to. He calls us to follow Him. It's either Him or it's the world. And that, that's the kind of mentality that, that we need to have with this vow. So it's a sense of seeing our sin, of seeing who our Savior is, but then a wholehearted commitment to follow Christ. Understanding that we're going to struggle, um, but that we can rely upon Him. Um, look, if you would, to Philippians chapter 2. And uh, in Philippians, this is uh, this is one of my favorite books. I really like the book of Philippians. But Philippians two, you know, just there's this wonderful treatment that we read lots of times in verses five 
through, a, through 11, which just talks about Christ and how he was humbled. He came to earth. You know, he, he, you know, he didn't people. He didn't expect that people would understand that he was fully a person and yet fully God and stuff. And and uh, and it says in uh, verse nine. Therefore, God had you know. Even though Christ, he was humbled, it says, Therefore God was highly exalted, has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Then he says in verse 12, Therefore, because that is true, because Christ has come humbled and been exalted, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So, so that's the call, the same call that we see in this third question. You know, do you now resolve in humble reliance upon the Holy Spirit to live as becomes a follower of Christ? That's your bent. That's your direction. Okay. But he doesn't call us to do that by pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. And doing that ourselves. What does he say in verse 13? Praise <clears throat> God. Who works in you, both the will and to work for his good pleasure. Okay, so we need to resolve to do this, but we need to understand that we cannot live the Christian faith, the Christian life, in our own strength. We can't just try to do our best. We need to rely upon the Holy Spirit to enable us to do that, which is, you know, we talk about spending time in the Word of God and time in prayer and things like that. All those things are are important for us uh, to do as believers and looking to Him, you know, as as we uh, as we are walking in the Lord. Um, so uh, your growth and your sanctification, your approach to the Christian life, ought to be one of dead seriousness and sobriety. But, but Paul is saying that it is God is working you, and, and he's not finished with you yet. And he won't be finished with you until you pass from this world to the next world. And so ultimately, our growth is dependent upon the work of God in us by the grace of his Holy Spirit. Um, we are at our time. Um, I really want to take the time to, to go through this and, and talk a little bit about um, how we grow and how Kirk of the Plains is part of your growth. And so I'm going to save that for next time, and we'll finish that next time, and then we'll go on to, to the next vow. But um, anyway, when, when you stand up and you take these vows before the church, or if, if, if all of you or most of you decide to become members, we may not call everybody up front because the whole church will be up front. We may just have you stand where you're at. But when you stand up publicly and I ask you these vows, what you are doing, it's a lot like a, a wedding. You know, I tell the couple, you know, when you're making these vows, you're not just making these vows to each other. And you're not just making these vows in front of all these people that are sitting out here. You're actually standing before God and you're making these vows. And it's the same way with us. What we're saying in essence is these things are true. Now, how much uh, the first three vows were dependent upon us? Well, we were born sinners, so that 
wasn't dependent upon us. Jesus Christ was our Savior. God gives us the Holy Spirit. So, in other words, as we're making, as we're saying yes to these vows as Christians, we're basically saying, I swear to God that I see the work and evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in my life. I see, I vow that God is at work in my life. And that is making a difference, an impact, a change. It's causing me to live differently in my life. Does that make sense? <coughs> so, anyway, any questions before we close? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for this time and to talk about these things. Lord, it's just good to be reminded of your great sovereignty and, uh, and just how uh, unable we are to really add anything to our salvation. Lord, I pray that this would not mis you know, cause us to have the wrong ideas that this creates in us some kind of uh, slothfulness or laziness. But instead, Lord, that it would stir our hearts to rejoice to know that because I didn't decide about my salvation, I am secure as a child of God. And I can rejoice in that. And I can know my Father's love. And I can know that He is able not only to love me, but to keep me and, and to uh, bring me to a place where I can spend forever with him. That that's what heaven is about, not seeing our friends, but it's about being with you, oh God. And I just pray that you would help us to think about these things uh, in its intricacies. Lord, that it might stir our hearts ever to love you more and to worship and praise you. We thank you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, do me a favor. Uh, I need you to bring these sheets back next week because what I have printed on the back, we definitely are going to go over. If you did not, if, you, if you're afraid you're going to forget it, you can put it in my magic little folder and it will come back next week. And if you think you won't do that, um, if you have a Bible or something, you want to stick it in there, that's fine too. But we just need to make sure you bring that back and then I'll bring those next week. Yeah. Okay, what, in the folder? Yeah, it was just a blank one. Oh, okay. Hey, oh, by the way, uh, I've almost forgotten. Um, if you, uh, the there's a calendar that's going around, and I just, I'm asking you if you could mark on there the dates that you would be available for a membership interview with the session. I'm trying to coordinate the, the, the schedules of all the elders, and there probably will be several times, and we'll... Uh, be meeting to, to or, you know, we'll have different times to be interviewed with the session. And if you could write down the dates when you'd be available, or if you're available all the time, you can just say, I'm not available on these dates, whatever. But you can just write your name on that calendar. That'll let me know. And it could be during the week or anything. It may be an evening type interview or whatever. And, you know, if you come from a larger family, I can appreciate this. Sometimes some of the family is available one time and some of the family is available another time. That's okay. You don't have to all be interviewed at the same time. It could be different times. So, thanks.